And once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are joined by Gabriella Hoffman. She is a Young Voices contributor as well as a full-time freelancer based in Virginia. And uh, Gabriella, great to catch up with you once again. Good to revisit with you, Brian. Hope all is well. It is. And, you know, I I love the topic that you and I are going to be talking about today. You are a full-time freelancer. I am a full-time freelancer. And I never thought I would say this, but I really like being part of the gig economy. And, and, you know, it's, it's different than the security of a regular paycheck, you know, on a regular basis. But there's a measure of freedom that comes with it. And I understand that this, unfortunately, is just too good to be true for some politicians. Talk to me about the Department of Labor and, in particular, uh, David Weil, Dr. David Weil, and, and some of the ideas he has for how we can <clears throat> fix the, the situation for us freelancers. Certainly. While the economy is transitioning more towards this flexible, less traditional framework from a nine to five to flexible work arrangements, we see a lot of people in government, especially under the Biden administration, resisting the trends or failing to acknowledge where the economy is moving. It doesn't mean the economy is going to be destroyed or workers will be less free or less empowered if this model is adopted more widely. And it seems to be the case. But like you, full-time freelancer, and I'm very concerned about the selection of Dr. David Weil to return to the wage and hour division at the Department of Labor. He previously served in this role under Obama administration. Now he's coming back, potentially, although it seems that even though his nomination was advanced, we don't know when the Senate will hear from him. We've heard different chatter, as I noted in my piece at National Review on behalf of Young Voices that Joe Manchin has expressed concerns for him. There's possibly some concerns from maybe some of the Arizona senators and then possibly from Montana, Joe, uh, John Tester. Uh, but f- so far, Joe Manchin has said, eh, kind of concerned with what this guy has to say. And revelations from his past work, from his uh, administrator, from his uh, memos that he did, his administrator in AIs, as they call it, but it's a memo, essentially. He's written extensively about why he believes most independent contractors are employees. He made a conclusion about that and said that's how we should be treating them and essentially adopting an ABC test. That's what I noted in the piece as well, which would essentially upend freelancing as we know it and make it harder for freelancers to prove that they are not tied to an employer, that they are not hinged on them. And we saw this in California. I cite that example as well with AB5 and how that really displaced a lot of freelancers from the workforce and adopting that nationwide by regulatory fiat in this manner, as David Weil has expressed interest in doing, would be very destructive to this burgeoning sector. He's also gone after franchises and he tried to change the rules with with respect to overtime rule pay and a district court handed down a decision against him saying that he overextended his power in that respect. So he really is not a friend to freelancers. I hate to categorize it in that sense, but it seems to me evidence wise that he is unfortunately not on the side of freelancers. He classifies this type of work as fissured work, kind of painting it in a really negative light. But it's a it's a type of work setup that a lot of Americans, regardless of politics, are inclining themselves to. And it seems that regulators haven't gotten with the times, unfortunately. And, and David Weil is an example of that. 
Now, I'm sure this is being sold as, hey, we're just trying to help you workers. We're looking out for you. I mean, because that's what government does for us, is it it works out for us. But, uh, Gabriella, this sounds an awful lot like a solution looking for a problem. What are the downsides? What happens when when uh, freelance workers are reclassified as employees? Well, what we're seeing in California is a lot of people have had to go back to working full-time jobs. Many of them, anecdotally speaking, or just kind of observing what people have said in response to the law being adopted. They've had to apply for exemptions. Not everyone has been awarded those exemptions. It's really put, let's say, the trucking industry in peril because a lot of truckers, for instance, are independent contractors, and they refuse to want to be unionized. And it kind of just puts people in free fall when it comes to their work choices. So many people have had to scale back on their work scope. We've seen a lot of industries kind of upended. People have had to move out of state to want to continue working as freelancers. I can't quantify the exact numbers of people who've left California that are freelancers, but I would summarize that a big chunk of them have. Also, it's made it increasingly harder for people from outside of California to contract with freelancers in California. So businesses very scared of this policy have opted to not work with freelancers. So it's just a complete, complete botching of this burgeoning sector of the economy. And if we were to see it exported nationwide, I worry that we would see the same effects, but on a grander scale, you'd see a loss of the GDP. You'd see unions taking a huge share of freelancer money. So under the PRO Act, which would be a federal adoption of AB5, it would not only create an ABC test to measure whether or not a worker is an independent contractor or not, they would make them default employees. Then you would see the abolition of right to work laws, which protect workers' ability to not join a union. Then you'd see unions getting more entangled in business affairs with them having a seat at the table when a lot of businesses don't necessarily want them there. And then you would have to essentially give your worker information under one provision to a union boss who would then do who knows what with that information, whether to use it to target individual workers because they may not align politically. Uh, Then you'd essentially have to pay union dues. It's estimated that I think workers would have to pay between $350 and $1,100, estimated to be about $500, $600 a year to unions when a lot of workers do not want to hand over that. So there'd be a lot of costly provisions, a loss of freedom in terms of freedom to associate privacy concerns with unions having all this worker information. I think a lot of people are very skeptical of whether government or private entities having uh, access to your private information. And it would just encroach on people's ability to work freely and independently of employers. Man, I don't know. This sounds like a dream come true for anybody who's really into bureaucracy. I mean, it sounds like uh, this this would be the recipe for endless bureaucracy at, at every level. Um, when you mentioned California and their AB5 um, bill, I remember hearing from people at that time who said, look, you know, this is this is how I make my living. But people will not hire me if they have to consider me an employee because of all the red tape, all the 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 different benefits, the taxation considerations, uh, you know, Social Security and so forth that comes along with it. Are the states pushing back or are are there is there is there pushback, you know, from other states saying we don't want this at the federal level because we don't need it? Let's look at the case of West Virginia, which actually just passed a landmark bill signed into law by their governor, Governor Jim Justice. I think it was last year, which codified into state law saying that 
workers cannot be intentionally misclassified as employees. So it gave greater assurances for workers to, I believe, to subject themselves to a 20-point IRS test and other measures, not an ABC test. Theirs has a pretty good law in the book where it says the ABC test will not become norm to test whether or not for IRS purposes and other taxation purposes, whether or not a worker is a default employee. So I loved the fact that that was codified into law. I thought that was a great, great law. I was actually supposed to testify personally myself in Virginia last week for a similar law, which didn't have as clearly defined I would say goals to protect independent contractors like West Virginia's law did, but it was close enough. But the bill was carried over to next year because the governor, I was told, has an interest to kind of uh, offer some more assurances, maybe similar to the West Virginia. I don't know all the specifics, but I was told just right before I was about to testify in committee that the bill was carried over. So it's not totally a bad thing. I think Virginia, there's an interest to codify protections for workers, independent workers to not be subjected to ABC tests as well. I think there are states uh, elsewhere. I think it was New Jersey that said only golf caddies would be able to identify as independent contractors. But now there's a bill to be introduced to extend those protections to other independent workers as well. You see New York wanting to adopt something similar to AB5, a lot of blue states wanting to adopt similar laws to AB5. And then I think you see other states uh, perhaps uh, protecting independent contracting. Like I said, I think the West Virginia case study is probably the best example. I haven't seen any other states, perhaps red or purple states otherwise yet, aside from Virginia, wanting to kind of act out on this. But hopefully other states do, especially in response to, let's say, if the PRO Act were to pass in Congress, although it is still stalled, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or whether through regulatory fiat, if passing state laws could be a buffer against any changes that come down from the Department of Labor. But I think anything coming from DOL could be challenged in courts, making it harder for it to be enacted on a federal level. So as much as I would hate to see it pass in either iteration, I think if a, a rules change were to pass, especially with this new White House task force recommendation paper that just came out. And they, again, reaffirmed support for the PRO Act and cracking down on alleged rampant uh, misclassification of workers. I think, yeah, the courts could be a buffer against that. And I think individual states like West Virginia and others could act as a buffer. But it takes cooperation from your state legislature. You can't just pass an executive order, as we've learned in Virginia, uh, to do that, unfortunately. Uh, but maybe some Democrats here in Virginia will be open to that. I think maybe a handful of pro-business ones are more understanding of not blanket painting workers as employees. Okay, we are talking with Gabriella Hoffman. She's a Young Voices contributor and full-time freelancer. I love in your column where you say... I don't want to be liberated from my independent contractor status. And the future is freelance. Where can people find your work? Absolutely. The future is freelance. A Pew Research poll denoted that as well. But I'm on social media everywhere. I'm usually denoted by a blue check mark. That's easy to find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My Young Voices profile uh, will point you to all my work with them. I actually just became a regional leader program participant one of five i will be covering the northeast and mid-atlantic and looking for people in our region to bring into the young voices program so i'll be taking on more mentorship roles through young voices as well i have a website gabriellahoffman.com i run the district of conservation podcast so when i'm not talking about labor i'm talking about conservation and other issues so good to be with you brian thank you for having me come on to discuss this very important but sadly underreported topic agreed great to visit with you as well 
Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Alice Watson-Brown back to the show. Alice, uh, for those who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi, um, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I'm Alice. Uh, I'm 21. Uh, I'm from the UK. I was born in London uh, and I go to the University of Bristol, which is kind of like on in the west of England. Uh, it's near the sea. It's very pretty, but very cold at this time of year. Um, and I briefly uh, was part of the Tobacco Harm Reduction Fellowship with Young Voices. And that sort of laid the premise for the article we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I'm looking at your article from 1828.org.uk. The UK didn't fight for freedom from the EU to give in to the unelected World Health Organization. And I am I am all ears because I know that uh, um, the World Health Organization has gained an immense amount of influence in the last couple of years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Talk to me about what life was like in the UK Um I mean, we can we can do some context about uh, Brexit and getting out of the, the European Union, but um, just going through the whole COVID experience, it, I have the impression that things were, were pretty tough in the UK. W- would you agree? Disagree? It depends what time frame you look at it. If you go all the way back to May 2020, um, everyone was pretty scared. We were hearing the, about these viruses, this virus. Um, cases were going up. People were dying. People were very worried. And people locked down initially because it was out of goodwill. We were genuinely worried. And the government was saying, giving all these figures every day, these press releases, we were seeing our prime minister on TV every single day, which is very rare um, for the UK. And people were tuning in, which is even rarer. We sometimes like to separate ourselves from uh, the elite at the top. But um it was sort of an every advice from the World Health Organization that was permeating everywhere on hand sanitizers, you know, World Health Organization recommended, you know, face masks, everything. Um, and it was all down to the expert advice. And then I was in my first year of university, so college, um, and it was cut off halfway through and I was pretty sad about that, but I understood. And then it got to... I would say November of 2021 and we were just plunged into another lockdown and people were just getting increasingly frustrated, especially young people. We had lost, you know, pretty much an entire year of education. Uh, We hadn't been able to work. We hadn't been able to see our friends and do the things that you should do when you're a university and when you're young. Um, But still we were just being told about, expert opinion you shouldn't be doing this you should be wearing two face masks and in the uk we have the sort of main scientific advisory body called sage they were working very closely with downing street and taking advice from the who as well so that was kind of the dynamic uh of sort of covid then and then now people are sort of fed up of it completely i think everyone is you know there are a very select few who are still very scared but especially with Partygate at the minute, we are not, the public are not especially keen to acquiesce to any expert opinion at the moment. And of course, Partygate was uh, basically political leaders uh, telling the people, you must obey this rule, but then flouting those rules themselves, right? Yes. And they were flouting those rules in May 2020, which is just not because, not purely because they weren't leading by example, but because they completely exploited the genuine goodwill of the public 
in the first wave of the pandemic. Um, as I said, they were locking down, not just because the government told them to, but because it was civic duty. Everyone had this, you know, quite British wartime spirit um, to protect other people. And it's still kind of uh, ongoing. There have been, I've lost count of how many parties and accusations have gone on. The police are getting involved, so we can't hear more about the report from the civil service. And to be honest, (laughs) I'm of the opinion, I don't really care if they have parties. I just think that, Firstly, the UK government fined a lot of people for having parties throughout lockdowns. Everyone should get their money back and be just scrapped, scrap all the rules, stop making people isolate, stop testing healthy people, stop locking down healthy people. It's just it's cruel at this point. Let's talk about uh, the I love in in your article, you you tie into how, uh, you know, the UK, it, it was quite a quite an effort to separate itself from the European Union. And and what was some of the justification? In, in fact, it, let, if you would, just walk us through. Why was it important to many within the UK to step away from the EU and, and, and be more, you know, uh, on their own in terms of, of making decisions? Well, there are many different reasons. The first one is kind of down to the fact that when we entered the European, well, the European Economic Community, Uh, we were probably not expecting to be drawn into this huge cluster of member states who were not only um, tied together economically, but then wanted to do foreign policy, security, uh, you know, climate change and culture and immigration. And I think the sort of then you get onto the kind of cultural displacement. So the migrant crisis of 2015, for example, you know, the it was very clear the EU were not equipped to deal with it. And Britain is still dealing with the effects of that with crossings from the channel. um, And there is no comprehensive way of dealing with it. Um, And the structure of the EU as well makes it very hard for member states in these instances because of the concept of supranationalism. So the power of the member states are transferred to the commission and the council. It's all quite complicated. I'm trying to simply put it in very simple terms, but in essence, it is not a democratic body which promotes British sovereignty. And I think when Boris Johnson comes along after the sort of disastrous premiership of Theresa May, he was trying to pass his Brexit deal. um, He was sort of like a beacon of hope for UK primacy. Uh, You know, you could sort of compare it in America to Donald Trump and America first, but slightly, I don't, I'm wary of making comparisons, but I guess it was sort of like that. Um, So Brexit was a, a cultural and economic issue that had reap divides in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party for decades. Um, not only were right people on the right in the Conservative Party anti-Brexit, but even on the left, Jeremy Corbyn um, was very anti the EU. He saw it as some kind of elite capitalist club, techno- technocratic, you know, not getting anything done, really, you know, making decisions as far away from the normal average person uh, of the of of the member states, which will affect their lives substantially. Yeah, I I think your reasoning is very solid as to uh, why, you know, look, after all that effort to, to be able to have a greater say in charting our own course without it, without so many different bureaucrats, you know, having their their ability to sway it or influence it. Why would the UK want to put itself uh, under the, the thrall of the unelected World Health Organization? Uh, 
Now, notwithstanding that that was a scary time, when we go back to, you know, spring of 2020, uh, there were a lot of unknowns. What are you encountering among your, your fellow uh, countrymen as far as, as are, they, are they more skeptical, more trusting of government? Has, has it shifted their, their attitudes in terms of, of uh, what, what officials, particularly health officials, are, are telling them? Well, this is a very interesting question. Um, I'm I'm doing my thesis on uh, how coronavirus attitudes fit into political cleavages in the UK. And generally, there has been a a decline of trust uh, from in when it comes from intellectuals. But I think in particular in the UK, um, people now that Partygate has come up, people are just so much less inclined to trust a government who is not principled, who lies to you, who coerces you. And and they use psychological techniques to lock the people of Britain down by saying they did say, if you go out, you will kill your grandmother. And I think now that you're not actually seeing piles of dead old ladies in the streets, (laughs) um, people are putting slowly. I mean, it's quite fascinating how quickly all these civil liberties eroded and how long it's taking people to realize that they need them back. Um, So people are definitely more skeptical of COVID rules in general. But I think we are not due a general election for a while. And there have been two fringe parties come up on the right, one led by Nigel Farage, a sort of a Brexit party reformed, and then another one by Lawrence Fox called Reclaim. Um, you know, they're not obviously doing very well in the polls because they're fringe parties, but it'll be interesting to see if, and they are very anti-elite, so it'll be interesting to see how they do. Okay, we are talking with Alice Watson-Brown. She's a political commentator and a Young Voices contributor. Alice, great to catch up with you again. I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to reconnect with Sean Tima. He is a Young Voices contributor, and you wear a couple of other hats as well, don't you, Sean? That's right. Good to be here. Um, Yeah, I I currently serve as Chief of Staff at Young Americans for Liberty and uh, love writing pieces with Young Voices. Great group. Well, I'm looking at an article that uh, that you have written for thefederalist.com, and this is an interesting story. I've I've heard some rumblings of this. The, The headline is... In response to COVID, Broadway got woke and went broke. And I've seen some interesting stories about, uh, you know, how, how, you know, the the great white way, you know, responded to COVID and then the restrictions. And of course, they shut down the theaters for a long time. Um, Walk us through what has happened. I know COVID upended a lot of things, but tell us how it affected Broadway. Yeah, well, it's unfortunate because they got off to the wrong start right away. And never before has that happened. In the history of Broadway, you're talking about an industry that stayed open during the World Wars, during the Spanish flu, or rather the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, They only closed for two days after 9-11. But when it was politically expedient for them at the start of COVID, the artists, the top artists and the producers, they didn't push back at all to the mandates. They said, shut us down. Let's stay home, save lives. It'll only be a month. Hey, nobody speak out against us, or you might look like you're pro-Trump or, you know, (laughs) anti-justice. And that pretty much shut down any dissent and any civil disobedience that is so essential 
to Broadway's um, MO in terms of what they promote and what they advocate for. I mean, great musicals like Hairspray, you know, they march against segregation. Um, great musicals like Hair, they burn their draft cards. There, there's a history of disobeying the government and unjust laws in Broadway, but they rolled right over for uh, you know the COVID machine, and it's coming back to haunt them. Any idea why the the sudden interest in compliance versus you know fight the power? Why why would they do that? I really think it just comes down to them choosing the wrong side of the culture war here. This is a time, remember, where. People were throwing logic out the window. They were willing to make it illegal for people to put food on the table if it meant them signaling that they were you know, anti-Trump. And I think that's one of the greatest consequences of the lockdowns is people going straight on emotion, straight on fear. Look, I, I forgive someone if they were a little bit nervous during the uh, you know March 2020, um, but that doesn't mean we shut down entire industries and, again, make it illegal to put food on the table. That's where it comes from. That's what it's ultimately about. And they chose this political expediency and this peer pressure, uh, this woke communism that's infiltrated the arts – over literally letting themselves work. And anybody who did advocate for it was immediately you know, hammered from all sides. And in some cases, there, there are people who are out of work, prominent stars, because of one tweet. And it's very disappointing. No, it's you, you point out that, uh, you know, there was there was a press release on March 12th of 2020 saying that well, we're going to have to temporarily close the theaters. How long were they actually closed? Yeah. Well, they said it would be just two weeks to slow the spread, but Broadway didn't open its doors again for 510 days, you wow. know, going over a year and a half. It was March 2020 all the way down to fall of 2021. So talk about gaslighting. And you've got this one guy, right? Kevin Campbell is his name. Or rather, uh, Chad Kimball. Kevin Campbell's a different guy. And he stands up and he says, hey, look, I've had COVID. This is March, uh, November 2020. He says, I've had COVID, right? I'm going to go to church and wear a mask, and I'm going to challenge this order from Governor Jay Inslee in Washington where they said, hey, you can't gather together and sing. But I'm going to wear a mask, and I'm going to practice my worship. That's pretty reasonable, especially when you've got you know the barrage of these uh, Democratic politicians who are going out there and breaking their own orders already. This was a common thing by then. So this guy, again, he's got natural immunity. He's got a mask. He says, I'm going to go worship. I'm going to practice my freedom of religion. And he gets hammered. By his Broadway co-stars, you know, they call him, uh, you know, Neanderthal thinker. They say that he's just part of the big right wing conspiracy. And it turns out a couple months later, all of a sudden he just was conveniently not rehired for uh, his starring role on Broadway. So he's in an active lawsuit right there. But that's just one of many examples of people who did try and speak out after the fact and were swiftly punished. And I think I think that if you had leaders in the beginning, like we did with Shelley Luther, in Dallas, like we did with the uh, Attilus Jim in New Jersey, who refused to shut down, then we would see a much different Broadway right now. Uh, and we would see, you know, this woke communist ideas being challenged in the arts at a greater level. But they missed their shot. They missed their shot. And, and for those who may not remember, Shelley Luther was the salon owner, right? Who, who stayed open in defiance. I mean, she I think she was arrested. She she uh, that's correct. Yeah, she had her her, her business shut down. But uh, yeah, that, that kind of yeah. courage was was definitely needed. Uh, yeah. Greg Abbott put her in jail for a couple of days for just trying to feed her employees. I mean, if that's not ridiculous. I don't know what is.
No, it it is, but th- there's there's an aspect here, and I, I I can't decide if it's if it's just the politicizing of of so much of our lives, you know, where everything has to become a political statement, or as you mentioned, the idea that um, I have to show how woke I am, and and I use that term woke as, as more of a euphemism for that is like the ultimate virtue signal, you know. I I wear not just one mask, I wear five masks so that people can see how virtuous I am. That's that's what I believe a woke person would do, but. Th- The difference is the woke person would also try to impose that on everybody else around them instead of letting them make their own choices. Absolutely. And the fact that the left and as as a former leftist, right, I was able to put two and two together that, hey, good ideas don't need to require force. And at what point do they realize, as the uh, the meme would say, you know, do they realize that they are, in fact, the baddies? Right. And I think (laughs) what it comes down to is just consistent pointing out of the facts. Right. And and reframing the dialogue to should it be illegal? You know, I mean, in the lockdown era, should it be illegal for people to go out and put food on the table? Should we throw people in jail for just trying to gather peacefully? And now in the uh, you know COVID mandate, mask and vaccine mandate era, you know, should we throw people in jail and shame them for not wanting a uh, forced injection into their body and taking away their right to bodily autonomy? Right, two things that Broadway is taking away right now with the vaccine mandates and the uh, ID cards because you have to show your vaxport and your ID card to get into the Broadway show. But I also thought that under woke communism that uh, my body, my choice and no human is illegal. So you just it's all there for us to just bring back to them and say, do you see how you're contradicting yourself? And if we bring that calmly, we bring that forcefully, then I I think that we're going to wake up some people. That's my optimism for the day. Let's expand a little bit, too, on the on that slogan of uh, go go woke, get broke or uh, go broke. Um, How has this impacted Broadway, for instance, the vaccine passports, the restrictions that they put on their audience. Are are people coming in spite of those restrictions or is this keeping the crowds away? Yeah, well, you know, people are coming, but not as many as before. You've got uh, on an average about 62 percent of seats are filled as of you know the end of January. That was the report there. Um, so the seats are empty. Some of these shows are being canceled with the audience in the seats. Right. So you got people who are not getting their money back because, hey, despite all these lockdowns, people are still getting covid. Right. Shows that it didn't really work that well. Um, and you've got now the Broadway League, which is the union of producers or the producer representation who said, hey, 15 days to slow the spread. Let's or rather they said a month to slow the spread. So stay home. They are now asking the workers and the Broadway actor workers to take a 50 percent pay cut. Right. So you've got Ooh. this internal strife of. Hey, sorry that we locked you out and that you complied with it, but now we're still going to, you know, ask you to take a huge pay cut even though you're a starving artist. So you've got issues internally on Broadway that came from their own decisions. You've got issues with audience members showing up. You know, you've got to wonder how many uh, you know, conservative patron of the arts uh, are no longer going or not even conservative folks, but folks that are just sick of this COVID madness that are no longer going. Uh, so, you know, we will find out as, as it goes on. I hope that they come to their senses, that they lift their restrictions, but uh, that would be uh, not politically expedient for them at this time. And it's going to take a little bit of politics and culture to mix together for that to happen, I think. How likely is it that uh, Broadway turns to the federal government, for instance, for a bailout? Is oh, they that... already have. Oh, they have? They already okay. have. Um, you know, the Hamilton, you'll find this publicly, they received, uh, you know, at least $10 million from the federal government, but the actors who are now being asked to take a pay cut 
they're complaining that there's been no financial transparency, not just for Hamilton, but these other shows who received millions of dollars in federal bailouts. The producers and the, the heads who received the grants aren't really saying where the money went. Uh, it clearly didn't go to the workers. So they've already gone to the federal government. You know That might wake some people up too, that, hey, just because the federal government is cutting people a check doesn't mean it's actually trickling down to those in need. Okay, so Sean, what's the takeaway? I'm sure there's there's a lot of lessons here, but if there's one takeaway that uh, that our audience can can take from this conversation, what would you want them to remember? I think they should remember that if they're an artist themselves, they're a thespian, if they're a painter, whatever industry you're in, that there's been a history of civil disobedience in your field and that you are should be emboldened and you should have the duty to stand up against these government mandates, even if your candidate of choice is saying, no, 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 this is what we want you to think. It will come back to hit you. You will be put out of work and you will not get the trickle down federal government grant money that comes in after the fact. So stand up and speak out because they will come for you. All right. We've been visiting with Sean Tima. He's chief of staff for Young Americans for Liberty, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Sean, great to catch up with you. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. And we welcome you to our final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Christopher Barnard. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Christopher, I'm going to ask you to fill in any gaps here of other things that you do to pass the time. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, as you, as you said, my name's Chris. Um, I'm also the National Policy Director for the American Conservation Coalition, a conservative environmental organization. Um, so that's probably enough context for you now, right? Okay. No, I, I'm glad to be talking with you, and I'm really excited to talk about the topic that we have before us. I have a piece that you wrote for the OC Register, and it's Biden's voting rights bill package rife with hypocrisy. And Chris, I'm remembering it was not that long ago that we were being told that no one should be questioning election integrity. Why, that's just an un-American thing to question. And yet I'm hearing a lot of questioning of election integrity if this particular voting rights bill package doesn't pass. That's kind of an interesting flip. Yeah, absolutely. And and kind of the worrying thing to me with that is uh, Biden himself seems to be using this very Trumpian rhetoric where he's uh, he's saying that the midterms at the end of this year might not be legit. Uh, those are his his words. Um, and I, I think it's just a, a kind of stunning reversal from just two years, two years ago, like you said, um, that Democrats were, were wailing against Republicans for, for doubt, casting doubt on an election. And now they seem to be doing the same thing. Why? Because it looks like they're going to lose. Yeah, I'm I'm very skeptical about uh, about what this all could mean. But talk to me about what exactly is this voting rights package supposed to accomplish? I know I know the politicians have a you know, they want to sell it to the public as something that we just can't do without. It's essential. What's it supposed to do? What's it supposed to fix? That's a great question. Um, And I think you have to start a little bit with laying the foundation of why they think we need this. Um, and, and you have uh, Democrats, uh, Chuck Schumer, President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and even former President Obama kind of weighing in on this voting rights debate and saying that Republicans in the last two years have introduced bills in state legislatures across this country that would make it very hard for people to vote um, and that would suppress minorities and that they would essentially um, try to steal um, the election in the midterms. 
And so that's really kind of the, the basis for um, this, this new voting rights package uh, that would essentially seek to standardize at the federal level voting um, electoral uh, rules and would overturn many of these state rules and, and propose state laws. Um, and so just a few examples of that would be it would vastly expand um, uh, the uh, documentation that is allowed to be used um, to, to prove your identity. So it, it would water down many voting voter ID uh, laws that have been proposed or introduced um, in, in states. Um, they would also, for example, allow um, convicted felons once they've been released from prison to, to vote, which right now is kind of split evenly between states. Some allow it, some don't. And that's something that's been left up to the states. Um, and, and other other uh, proposals would, for example, require political groups spending over $10,000 in an election cycle to disclose the identities of their donors above $10,000. Uh, and so there's, there's all kinds of proposals in there that essentially centralize this decision-making in the federal government rather than keeping the power with the states as has pretty much always been. Yeah, that uh, that sounds like a one size fits all solution that uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but it sounds like it, that would favor um, that would favor politicians who are more in with the federal power apparatus. Is that a wrong characterization? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's just weird that right now Democrats are so worried about Republicans taking over the federal government in the midterms or even the next presidential election that they would want to centralize this very critical um, authority and power in the federal government because it just seems like a recipe for disaster if um, every few years, depending on what party is in control in Washington, that they would be allowed to just determine um, the, this, the critical voter right laws um, that would govern the rest of the country. Yeah, and and the accusations that have been leveled, and I think uh, you know President uh, Biden has been one of the chief ones among this about, you know, if we don't pass this, why it's the same as if we just went back to Jim Crow laws. And I mean, people who lived under Jim Crow laws, uh, surely you know they they recognize we're nowhere near, you know, the the kind of uh, attitude or atmosphere that they they had to operate in. I think that's exactly right. And I think it is um, uh, quite a stunning thing to say and, and quite insulting, actually, to those people that underwent some of those things. Uh, and, you know, the, the biggest hypocrisy to me is um, the fact that over the last two years, uh, Democrats have actually gerrymandered ruthlessly across this country. Um, the, the Data for Progress uh, organization, very progressive organization, actually released a study recently showing that more districts will be to the left of Joe Biden in 22 than they were during the presidential election, despite him winning with a four and a half point majority uh, to become president. And if you look at states like New York, they're set to, to gain three Democratic congressional seats because of the gerrymandering. Same thing in Illinois, similar story in Oregon. And so um they're claiming that Democrats are trying to change the laws and trying to just entrench their own interests. But what they've really done in the last two years is do that exactly that. But for Democrats, well, to, to an outside observer like me, and I I really uh, I'm not above all the politics, but I do try to keep from getting my hands really dirty. This just seems like an effort to nationalize elections to where basically the people at the federal level can can influence them in whatever ways they want. And I don't want that under Republicans, and I certainly don't want it under Democrats either. I, I just want elections that I can can count on. Is there pushback from the states to to uh, to blunt this, or is this something that is likely to, to be pushed through at the federal level, like it or not? I think there's already pushback at the federal level um, to the extent that when the when the bill was introduced in in the Senate, it failed. 
um, and it even failed to get the full Democratic Party on board. Um, Cinema and Manchin, kind of the two holdouts for a lot of the Democratic priorities this Congress uh, sided with the Republicans. And then Chuck Schumer tried to um, uh, force through a filibuster um, overrule that would essentially allow a simple majority to pass this bill. And again, the Democrats, uh, those two Democrats I mentioned, didn't want that. They believe it is divisive and bad for our republic. And so they sided with the Republicans on this. So um, insofar as state pushback, I don't think I've seen that much just because there's already enough federal pushback against this. You know, maybe I'm just being paranoid to think this way. But when I see the desperation that, for instance, Senator Schumer, let's nuke the filibuster. You know, we've we've got to have this by hook or by crook. We're going to get this thing through. That kind of desperation makes me very suspicious that uh, that it's this is more about advancing you know a certain special interest and and it's not at all about protecting the the rights of the average voter. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and I think it's it's not even about them wanting to centralize or standardize elections in in Washington D.C. I think it is pretty much a smokescreen. Um, for two reasons. The first one is to kind of distract from a lot of the very real problems that the Biden administration is currently facing, energy prices, inflation, Ukraine, um, and that it's a way to kind of uh, point the blame at Republicans for being um, reactionary against what the Democrats want. That's one reason, so that distraction element. I think the other reason is really they know they're going to lose in 22, and they they know that there's going to be a red sweep in, in the House, but maybe even the Senate, um, and I think they're preemptively casting doubt on that and trying to um, say that Republicans are messing with the election and whatnot. Whereas, again, that's really not what's happened from the evidence that we've seen over the last two years. But it's a way for them to almost justify ahead of time their loss. Again, similar to what former, former President Trump did um, in 2020. You know, Chris, I think in just the last few days, you have seen an astonishing number of Democratic leaders, um, not just at the federal level, but, at, you know, the state and even municipal level coming up and say, well, you know, I've always been against lockdowns and these really you know, hardcore uh, COVID policies. And I, I understand that that could be the product of they've been looking at the polling and are realizing um, the the populace is not happy with this. And, and, and they are likely to take a pretty big bath, you know, this this coming fall. Right. I mean, the big question for Democrats is what do they have to offer to voters at the end of this year when it comes to the election? I mean, they don't have much to offer in the way of climate policy, which is one of their big promises. They don't have much to in the way of offering um, stable inflation, stable energy prices, kind of stable role for the U.S. in the, in the international system. They just really have nothing to offer to their voters. Um, and so there's an interesting thing going on where they're saying – Oh, we're going to take uh, get rid of these uh, COVID restrictions and we're going to give back your freedoms. And, and that's all because of the sacrifices Democrats have made for you in the last two years. Um, I don't think many voters are going to buy that. So who are the people to watch as far as whether or not this bill ever does get traction? Uh, do, do you feel do you feel strongly one way or the other? Does it have a likelihood of passing or is this is it just uh, going through the motions at this point? I think it's going through the motions. Uh, I think there's plenty of things that the Democrats probably would rather focus on. Um, The Build Back Better bill, some of their climate provisions. There's just a lot of stuff that they have wanted to get done this Congress that they've not been able to. And they only pivoted to this voting rights bill because everything else died. But showing that even that died, I think there's really not much hope for it. Um, And honestly, they might not pass anything before the midterms. Okay, we are talking with Chris Bernard. He is a contributor to Young Voices and a regular political commentator. 
Chris, where can people find your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Chris Barnard DL. Um, and you can also just uh, look out for the Young Voices channels where my, my articles will appear as well. Okay. I thank you for your take on this, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Awesome. Thank you, Brian.